If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Revelation. As always, there is an insert in your bulletin that you can use to follow along with this morning's passage. You can grab a Bible on the back cart. We have uh, those available for you as well. Last week, for those of you who are here, we began what is planning, what's planned to be uh, a six-week series through the seven churches of Revelation. And again, we've already looked at that seventh church, which is why we're only doing six weeks of these These are real, ancient, local congregations that existed in the first century in the ancient world, in the Middle East, and these are churches that the Lord Jesus spoke to through His servant John, who wrote these words and then circulated them among these churches. Their message is not just for those churches, but these are messages, these are words for us, inscripturated, inspired by the Spirit, and preserved these many years that we might benefit from them. And again, when I say we, I mean the church. These are words spoken to us as a church, as a corporate body. Things to be warned by, things to be encouraged, warned of, things to be encouraged by, and words to guide our life together. Last week, we began in the city, the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, if you know your world geography. We've now moved 35 miles up the coast, right on the Aegean Sea, still in modern-day Turkey, to the city of Smyrna. We'll talk more about Smyrna and what Smyrna was all about in a moment, but these This is only uh, one of two churches of the churches listed in John's Revelation that do not receive a rebuke. Smyrna is only commended and encouraged, and I'll get to the reason why I think that is in just a moment. I think that's very intentional. But let's read very briefly what the Lord has to say to Smyrna. If you would, out of honor of God's Word, stand with me for the reading of our passage this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation." and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe this is just something that I experience from time to time and I risk uh, 
Well, I suppose whenever I step into the pulpit and tell stories about myself that I risk embarrassing myself, but so be it, just par for the course. Do you ever want to avoid something for fear that that something will actually happen to you? Now, what I mean by that is, for instance, not buying a seminary pl- a cemetery plot, not a seminary plot either, but not buying a cemetery plot for fear that, well, I don't even go down there. I don't, why would I need to buy that now? I'll, I'll wait and that comes later, so I'm not even going to buy a cemetery plot for fear of what might happen. Or, or buying that trip ticket insurance that they always try to get you to buy when you buy an airline ticket. And you think, well, I'm not going to buy that because then something, something will, I'm just saying that something's going to happen and something's not going to happen. This trip will be fine. And I know that's a bit quirky. I know that's probably a bit superstitious. It's irrational, but it's what came to my mind when I first sat down and read again the letter to the church at Smyrna. Because I thought to myself, here we go again talking about suffering, talking about persecution. Those of you who are members and regular attenders know that less than a month ago in our study of John 15 and 16, we heard Jesus' words to his disciples when he spoke to them saying that the road ahead for them and also for us as we opened up those scriptures, that the road ahead for them is going to be hard. But they are not alone, and they need to keep in mind that Jesus has overcome, and we opened up this topic of, of suffering. It was just less than a month ago, and so I came to the church at Smyrna, I thought, oh, I really don't want to talk about suffering again. Why would the Lord want us to hear about suffering and persecution again? What might He be preparing us for? And of course, that's irrational to think that way. The Lord may not be preparing us for anything specific, but He may. Certainly in His Word, we need to know it. We need to believe it. And so this morning, we set our hearts once again on this subject. And I'm going to go proper Presbyterian on you this morning with three points, with three promises for us to hear and be encouraged by. And the first one is this. Jesus says to his church, I am, I know, and I will give. Jesus says to his church, to you, brothers and sisters, to us, Ascension Presbyterian Church, I am, I know, And I will give. And we begin here because this is where Jesus, this is where Jesus begins with these these rich promises. And he speaks these promises to a church that is already hurting. Yes, it's clear from the words that Jesus has for the church at Smyrna. It's clear that there is more to come. What I want you to see is that they are already in the throes of great struggle. 
Struggle that has come specifically to the church at Smyrna because of their faith in Jesus, because they are following Jesus. And this, I think, is the reason why Smyrna is one of those churches that doesn't receive a rebuke. What does the Lord say to his people in Isaiah 42, verse 3? He says this, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Jesus is not withholding a rebuke from Smyrna because they're a perfect church. There is no perfect church. He is withholding a rebuke from Smyrna because they are a church that needs to be dealt with tenderly. It's the heart of our Savior. They're already struggling. And so these three threads, these three great, rich gospel threads work their way throughout the entire passage. I am, I know, and I will give. And I want you to have those in your mind as the backdrop, as we listen to, as we hear some of the hard words that Jesus says to that church and to us as this word comes to us this morning. Jesus communicates who he is, what he knows, and his provision for those who endure. And he begins with these echoes of uh, another passage of Isaiah 44, verse 6, words spoken to the nation of Israel specifically during the Old Covenant. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And so that's the first thing that that Jesus declares to them, right? In verse 8, the words of the first and the last. This is covenantal language. Jesus is identifying himself with the covenant Lord, Yahweh, the one who chose Israel, who called Israel, and we'll talk more about why this matters in just a moment. The words of the first and the last, they also communicate that this Jesus is bigger than history. This Jesus is bigger than what is happening. He knows the beginning, he knows the end. And not just the words of the first and the last, but the words of him who died and came to life. You see, this is the I am. This is Jesus declaring who he is, who is speaking, who is with them. And these are words that declare to the church, I died, yes, so might you. But I died and there was purpose to it, just as there will be to yours. There are no accidents. There are no loose ends. I am bigger than death. I am the living one who was raised to life that you might be raised as well. I am he who died and came to life. And these also had, these words also had maybe specific poignancy for that specific church because Smyrna was an ancient city that actually had been reborn had been rebuilt itself, had had risen from the ashes. It was destroyed totally in 600 B.C. And in 290 B.C., it was raised to life 
and rebuilt. And this, this people, this community, this city had literally risen out of the ashes. So they're hearing these words of Jesus, of who he is, the first and the last who died and came to life. And immediately the promises of Christ are being spoken to them in their affliction, in their hurt. And the next words from Jesus' mouth, I know your slander, your poverty, your tribulation. Jesus is saying this. This is more than just informational knowledge. Oh yeah, I got what's going on. No, Jesus is saying, I know that. I know slander because I have been slandered. I know poverty because I had no place to call my home. I know suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of this richness in just the first sentence, but a very intentional sentence given to the church at Smyrna. And then finally, we have the provision that lies at the end of it all, verse 10, jumping down a little bit in the message, I will give you the crown of life. This garland wreath, the victory that was placed on the heads of the victor, of those who had finished the race, their journey is now over, their rest will be rewarded, and the Lord says, this is what is coming for you. I am, I know, and I will give. We need to hear those promises. We need to hear those declarations as much as the first century church did. Our races are in entirely different stadiums. But they're much the same. That's the first trifold truth. But flowing from that, two more things that Jesus declares to his church as we kind of get into the heart of this message to Smyrna. The second thing is this, Jesus promises prosperity in the midst of poverty. Jesus promises his church prosperity in the midst of poverty. Yes, Jesus promises that you will be rich. In fact, Jesus says, you are rich even in your poverty. Smyrna was, as I said, it was a city that had been reborn. It was a city that had faithfully supported Rome for many years. It will be rewarded in coming years with the temple devoted to the emperor Tiberius. It was It was a prized city of Rome. What I mean by saying that is that this isn't some depressed oil boom town like Enid, Oklahoma. My apologies to those from Enid, Oklahoma. But my grandparents used to live there, and I remember every time I went to Enid, Oklahoma, they lived on a dirt road, but they weren't in the boonies. They were in town on a dirt road. It was just so depressing. No, Smyrna was a place where you could thrive. Where your dreams could be realized. And yet here, according to John's letter, here Christians are living in literal poverty. I I think that's how we ought to understand that statement. I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
mean, perhaps it was just their social class. Indeed, the gospel spoke in powerful ways to those who did not have much, if anything at all. No doubt. But I think, according to the context here, this wasn't just poverty of social class. Because, you see, in addition to Smyrna being this thriving Roman community, Smyrna also contained a strong community of Jews, Jews who had long endured the toleration of the Roman Empire concerning their way of life, concerning their worship of Yahweh. And these were Jews who even upon Jesus' arrival had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, And so they're not interested in this new church. They're not interested in these Christians. So while initially Christians enjoyed protection in the ancient world under the guise of Judaism, right? To the Romans, they were another sect of those who followed Yahweh, those who were ethnic Jews. But as the tide of toleration as the tide of acceptance for Christians began to turn near the end of the first century, with names such as Nero, a familiar Roman Empire who was brutal against the church. Now suddenly these Jews, this strong community of Jews in Smyrna, they were quick to declare, those Christians are not part of us, Rome. They are not a sect that should enjoy protection under Roman law. They are blasphemers. They aren't Jews. They aren't the true people of God. These are people that are saying there's another king besides Caesar. Rome, you better deal with these people. So the Jewish community in Smyrna had turned on Christians and Rome had begun to to turn on Christians, and we can only imagine what was going on then in their lives. Exclusion from the trade guilds, maybe. Struggle to find new employment, discrimination because they were Christians, probably. A freeze on promotions for Christians, maybe. Higher taxes, maybe. We don't exactly know how, but this is what we know. Following Jesus in ancient Smyrna was hurting the checkbook. It was hurting their comfort. It was hurting the Smyrnan dream of a house with two camels and a 401k and early retirement. Jesus knows this, and in his covenantal language, remember at the beginning, this covenantal language of appealing to Isaiah's words to the nation of Israel, he reminds the church, ethnic Jews and Gentiles, and he says to them, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is your God. It's not about genealogy, it's about Jesus. I know your poverty, and in your poverty, you are actually rich you are actually rich. As we think about this in our own modern church, in our own modern day, maybe you thought of the name Baronel Stutzman, 
a florist from our neck of the woods who knows something of the pain and the cost of commitment to Jesus in the secular realm. There are bakers just like her in Colorado and Oregon that know something of this. Bigots, they're called. Intolerant, unloving. You are going to pay for this. You and your Christianity. We're going to take you to court. We're going to rip your business away. I just read an article this week about a Colonel Leland Bohannon, who's an Air Force colonel who was told that he would be removed from his post at the Air Force Inspection Agency and would not be considered for any more promotions in his military career due to his unwillingness to sign a certificate of appreciation for one of his soldiers' same-sex unions. Was, had nothing to do with following an order. It was an optional thing that he was asked to do that he refused to do, and he began to pay the price. Now, thankfully, in that particular case, Congress stepped in and protected his convictions. But this is happening all around us. Reputations are being marred. Careers are suddenly in jeopardy. This can be the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And He reminds His church in Smyrna, He knows this. He reminds His church here in Edmonds, Washington, He knows this. And while he doesn't discourage us to fight for one's rights within the limits of the law as best as we can, indeed, we have people doing that. Praise God for them. He also reminds the church that in their so-called poverty, they are rich. In being slandered for Christ, honor awaits. After all, what what is true wealth? What is true honor? James chapter 2 verse 5 says, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So brothers and sisters, hear this, No, no matter what our circumstances in life, no matter what economic oppression we might be experiencing, no matter how our reputations might be suffering, the Scriptures remind us we are rich in faith, in hope, and in love. And not only that, but we're becoming richer in the midst of these circumstances. That's the promise of God's Word. Because He is, He knows, He will. So Jesus says, don't fear poverty, Christian. Don't fear slander. Don't fear what's standing up for your principles, what's standing up for Christ is going to cost you at work because you're rich. Your identity is secure. And honor awaits you. Honor awaits the faithful in heaven. Well, one last gospel reality to consider from this passage this morning, and it's this. Jesus promises peace in the midst of tribulation. Jesus promises peace in the midst of 
tribulation. We don't like suffering. We rightfully want to avoid suffering. And yet what our brothers and sisters in Smyrna experienced ought to make us examine our own hearts. John Stott, a well-known theologian and author, wrote once, he says, the ugly truth is that we, speaking of the modern church, we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity, purity, or love. The world often sees nothing in us to hate. And again, that's not a call to go annoy someone, to go be obnoxious. It's simply a reminder that what are we avoiding out of fear? Jesus speaks some hard words to Smyrna, some specific words that as a result of their faithfulness, not only will they experience slander and poverty and tribulation, but they've experienced to some degree already, but some of them will be thrown into prison and some will not make it out of there. They're going to die. We don't know the 10 days in, in prison. We don't know if this is literal or this is figurative. We know that the jail, the hardship that is promised here is literal, it's real. And who is doing this? Interestingly enough, we've been talking about spiritual warfare in the discipleship hour. The devil is about to throw some of them into prison. This is a spiritual war. This is Satan's work. And yet, what does the Lord say? It's that you might be tested. Yes, this is the devil's work, but I am, I am over this. There are no wasted moments with God. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. How it all works, again, going back to our discipleship hour class, how it all works, I don't know. That's a mystery. We know that Satan is wreaking havoc. We know that God is accomplishing his purposes. And these are hard words for Smyrna. How can they have peace in the midst of this kind of tri tribulation? How can they steal their hearts to not fear about what they're about to suffer? Well, they've got to keep their minds on these promises. We fear when we lose sight of the promises of God. We fear when we lose sight of the gospel. But as we keep the vision of the faithful one before us, as we remember his promises, we will conquer, we will escape the second death, and we will receive the crown of life. About 60 years after this letter was written, this revelation of John that went around the circuit, that traveled around these churches, about 60 years after this letter, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, he was a man that was mentored by John, the one who wrote this book. At the age of 86, he stood before these very officials in Smyrna. 
And the ancient historian Eusebius records it. It's an amazing account. I can send you the whole thing if you want to read it. There's a lot more to the story, but let me sum it up. The authorities came for him. Sweet Polycarp, at 86 years old, insisted that he feed them a meal before they drag him away. Asked if he could pray for them, which he did. They said as they were putting him in the carriage to take him off, they said, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrificing and saving your life? But he was unwilling, which made them immediately flip a switch and turn on him and beat him. And so bloodied and battered, he arrived at the arena, the stadium, and the magistrate there The Roman magistrate in Smyrna said, Swear and I will release thee, revile Christ. And Polycarp replied, Four score and six years have I been serving him. He hath done me no wrong. Can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he says, I will call the wild beasts for you. And Polycarp says, Call them. I will consume you by fire then, says the proconsul. Do what thou wilt, says Polycarp. And at the crowd's taunting and pleasure, this 86-year-old saint who had faithfully served this church for many years was burned and run through by a sword. And he wasn't the only one in Smyrna. And he hasn't been the only one since. We're going to have the joy and privilege of meeting that man one day. Of standing before Him and with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. What awaits us as a church? I don't know. Fox News article ran a few days ago. I just saw it yesterday. The title of it is, How Long Will I Be Allowed to Remain a Christian? And it closes, it's a long article, but it closes in this way. Want to stay true to your Christian faith in the most innocuous and giving of ways? To do so is becoming more perilous by the minute when you stop to ponder just a sampling of the negative consequences. For example, a high school football coach is fired for taking a knee in prayer. A teacher is fired for giving a Bible to a student who requested it. A Marine is cursed at and then court-martialed for not removing a Bible verse from her computer. Another Bible verse posted by sailors in a military hospital is labeled extremism. If you are a practicing Christian in the United States and you are open about it, you, your congregation, and your organization will become a target of some sort. It's only a matter of time. Ironically, This is what caught my eye. In some very real and ominous ways, it's as if we are being transported back to ancient Rome. Will we soon have to meet with fellow Christians in secret? Will we have to whisper our beliefs from the shadows? Will those Christians with traditional beliefs lose their jobs and livelihoods if discovered? Well, my answer is I hope not. I pray not. For the sake of our children, I pray not. But the Bible's answer is, maybe. But if so, fear not. Be faithful. Because He is faithful. And His promises are true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for this reminder from Your world.
that speaks in some way to our experience that we hope, that we pray, is not girding us up for an experience that is much harder, that is much harsher. Father, we will work faithfully to protect the rights of your people, not just for their comfort, not just for their safety, but for the gospel's sake. But Father, whatever you choose to allow us to experience, as you obviously allowed the brothers and sisters at Smyrna to experience, may we not lose sight of these promises, of the one who speaks them, of the one who went before us, and of the comfort that they are in the midst of our journey, in the midst of our race. For we indeed desire to be counted faithful. Father, impress this upon our hearts and minds this day for the good of your church and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.